You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Uh, so, hello, everybody. Welcome to our weekly virtual lecture uh, sponsored by the Center for Russia, East Europe, East, Europe, East Europe, and Central Asia. My name is Ted Gerber. I'm the director of uh, the center, and it's uh, great to see a nice turnout this afternoon. And now, without further ado, I'll turn over the floor to Yoshiko Herrera, professor of political science, to introduce today's speaker. Hi, hello everybody. It's a great pleasure to introduce Professor Jeff Sahadeo, who is professor at the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies and the Department of Political Science at Carleton University. Um, professor Sahadeo received his PhD from University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, or Urbana-Champaign, excuse me, <laughs> in 2000. And he joined Carleton after teaching at University of uh, Tennessee, Knoxville. His uh, research you may be familiar with is on um, issues of migration and inter-ethnic contact between Asian populations of the former Soviet Union and majority Russians in cities of Leningrad and St. Petersburg, um, as well as Moscow in the post-World War II era. And I uh, highly recommend a recently published fantastic new book by Professor Saadio, Voices from the Soviet Edge, Southern Migrants in Leningrad and Moscow, published by Cornell University Press in 2019. I had the pleasure of reading this book earlier this summer and I, I recommend it highly to uh, people interested in topics of um, both historical uh, migration and identity issues, as well as people interested in contemporary, understanding contemporary issues of identity in, in Russia and former Soviet states. So with no further um, ado, uh, welcome Professor Sahadio. Okay, thank you um, to Ted and uh, to Yoshiko and the Cold Creek staff for uh, inviting me virtually uh, and to all of you who've joined us. Uh, I suppose I can start optimistically by saying even though this isn't the ideal situation, it's the benefit is to have an audience beyond the university, including um, I'm sure I hope some from my own uh, home university at Carleton. Um, it is a little bit sad. I uh, love coming to Madison. I've been there several times. Of course, the, the Creek is a wonderful place to um, attend events, host events. I've gone for conferences. Uh, David McDonald has hosted me as a, a fellow Canadian and, and we had a wonderful time. Uh, I, my favorite story though, and the, I think what I remember about Madison is the very first time I came in and the uh, flight attendant at the airport or in the airplane, uh, as we were landing, said, welcome to, to Madison. Uh, if this is your final destination, go and get your baggage on Carousel 3. Uh, if you're looking to transfer, you're at the wrong airport. Uh, this maybe is a Midwest sense of humor, and, and I think it sort of fits well with what Madison um, has offered me, a very sort of understated, um, but just sort of fun place to be, but, but a wonderful university, so thank you. Uh, I'll be talking today about the last years of the Soviet Union uh, try not to think uh, that I'm old enough so that the eras that I have lived through have actually become history um, or the domain of history, but, but there it is. Uh, it's really fun for me to present on this period as an immediate lead up 
to the inspiration for the project and the book. And I'm going to sort of share my screen now, I hope, and start the presentation. And get this, get the video going. So if I move down to Moscow, 1992, this was the first time I had been to Russia and it sort of irks me that I never made it to the Soviet Union. I was sort of one year or two late for my first language program. Uh, and really this was the genesis of the project. I expected when I went to Moscow growing up in, in Canada to, to, to believe that when I, I would see a bunch of people who looked like Russian hockey players and, and ballerinas and things like that. And I was, in, I was struck by the multinational character of Moscow at that time. People from Africa, from China, East Asia, and then the people who I was interested in that, that you see there, people from the Caucasus and Central Asia, Chechnya, Uzbekistan, um, different republics, just uh, making their lives on the streets, um, selling goods, um, sitting on benches. Uh, it, it really just was so unexpected for me to see a city that was actually probably more diverse uh, than the city of Vancouver, which I grew up in, which had a little bit less of an international flavor. I mean, you really had people from every corner of the world. So I filed this um, memory away as I worked on my dissertation. And uh, came back to it afterwards when I started working on my next project. Uh, I had not really expected, you see my book um, here, uh, to, to think about this as from a human perspective. So my first goal was to look at Leningrad and Moscow as multicultural, multi-ethnic cities. I was struck by my father grew up in multi-ethnic London after the Second World War and I thought of Paris. Uh, let me study these cities and see where people lived, how the cities functioned. But I realized that there wasn't a lot of archival material, um, not a lot of uh, published material on this. And so I decided to look at oral histories as my main um, source, collected about 75 of them uh, from 2003 to 2012. And that really flipped the way that I thought about the project. I, when you hear these stories and you think about what makes someone in a tiny town in southern Kyrgyzstan or Azerbaijan pack up their stuff and go to Moscow and go to Leningrad, um, the, all the troubles that they had, all the opportunities that they had, um, I was just entranced by the stories and really it became much more about these migrants, about their lives, and then what that, when that, what that told us about the late Soviet Union. So um, to me, it was just a fascinating project. And, and so these are the subjects, Soviet citizens from the Caucasus and Central Asia who worked, lived, studied in Moscow uh, from 1953 to 1991, with probably the main focus on the 1970s and 1980s, just there were more of them um, and they were more accessible for oral histories. Uh, <clears throat> so the, the first wave of increases, which I talk about in earlier chapters of my book was in the late 1970s. Um, there's, increasing numbers of students and street traders, and then again during perestroika. So that's what I'll be talking about uh, today. And I think the main conclusion uh, from the book, and I don't think this was unique um, for me, but I, I really wanted to, to highlight it, was that in the Soviet Union, social and geograph geographic mobility were intimately linked. With Moscow and Leningrad really at the pinnacle of it. 
So you had, for example, people moving from small towns to uh, district capitals, to regional capitals, to um, Union Republic capitals. Then you had Kiev and um, uh, Tashkent, maybe a little bit higher as sort of uh, main um, Republican capitals and then Leningrad and Moscow at the top. And where you lived often and what kind of access you had to good education, to goods, uh, to networks. Um, but at the same time, what I argue in the book is that uh, Leningrad and Moscow, these were these so-called showcase cities. They were ruled by a lot of um, residence permit documentation, but they were actually intimately linked to the rest of the country through these channels and through these networks of migration uh, that I talk about throughout the book. And today I'll focus on um, the perestroika period. So if I go on, I'll just give you, shoot you a look at a map here. Um, and what we're looking at here are the major, the main um, republics of the Caucasus, so Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and the republics of Central Asia, uh, so the ones all in, in color here, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan. Uh, not too many Turkmen. I actually didn't find Turkmen who were um, in Soviet Leningrad and Moscow. I'm sure there were uh, Kazakhs as well. So uh, these were the people that made journeys um, by various motives, uh, for various motives, by various means uh, to the, um, what they called the two capitals of the Soviet Union of Leningrad and Moscow. Uh, these were students, um, temporary workers on so-called li limited um, propiski, sort of almost like a guest worker designation, professionals, traders, service workers, it really runs the gamut. And I, I can talk a little bit about that in the talk, but that could be something we can talk about in the Q&A uh, as well. Uh, these migrants sometimes left uh, difficult home or family situations, but mostly sought opportunity again at the heart of the country. Um, and the opportunities increased and the uh, calculations changed over the time of perestroika. And what I actually found was there was two real uh, periods as my migrants explained to me. The early period of perestroika, 1985 to 1989. Um, and you can see there I've got an image of Gorbachev and an image of, of McDonald's. Um, some of these opportunities that uh, people saw as exciting in the Soviet Union. I'll talk about how my, my migrants experienced them. Then 1990-91, when you started to have shortages, uh, you started to have um, tension, uncertainty, even reaching the capital. Uh, and then, of course, the final end to the Soviet Union in 1991. So, so it was actually challenging for me to do the interviews because I think as a Western scholar, you always think of um, dates and periodizations by the time that the, the Soviet Union ended. So I think of perestroika is ending in 1991, uh, Russia starting at the end of 1991, beginning of 1992. Um, but when I talked to my interview subjects, they saw 1990 as the main change when, when, when the certainty of the Soviet Union ended and the uncertainty of the, so the, the last couple of years of the Soviet Union and Russia began. So their minds sort of go back to the 1980s and the 1990s. And I often had a hard time trying to figure out when they were talking about 1991 versus 1995. Uh, so that, 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 was a, that, that was a challenge for me, but also an opportunity to think about how these um, subjects periodized the era. Uh, and 
uh, these, these stories that I heard, like I said, were the ones that really motivated me to think about um, life in the Soviet Union, um, how people experienced it, how people moved around, uh, and the roads to Moscow. So I'll just begin with a couple of stories to get us set up into the talk. Um, the first one from uh, medical, a medical student, Abdul Halimov, who recalled the, he was from Tajikistan, and he recalled in, at the beginning of, middle of 1985, taking a book of Farsi poetry out at Sheremetyevo Airport when he was uh, heading back to, uh, Dushan, to Dushanbe on uh, leave or vacation and having a bunch of Russians come up to him and telling him he could be arrested and saying they're going to get the police and, and him just looking and saying, no, this is Glasnost, this is Gorbachev, I can read this if I want. Um, and the, the, the amount of freedom, like a lot of us have heard about, uh, was very much in the minds of these um, migrants too. Then Erkin Bakchiev, um, who came by train in 1987 to Moscow with a suitcase full of rubles, um, for him, it was economic opportunity that he was most interested in, um, coming from his home republic of Kyrgyzstan, the city of Osh. Uh, he wasn't exactly sure what he was going to do, except to try and make money. Wandered through different stores. Uh, he went to Goom, to the main department store in uh, Soviet Moscow, found a whole bunch of what he called Mercury brand shirts. I tried to look up what they were. I couldn't find them. Uh, he said they looked quite small. They looked too small for the corpulent Muscovite that he saw on the streets, but they seemed that they would fit uh, more uh, live Central Asians. So with a small bribe, he bought the stock out from a merchant in Goom, um, shipped them back by, with him by train, sold them in Osh, um, found out also he could buy lufus bunches in Moscow, brought those back, um, then started taking um, material uh, for clothing, yarns and things like that from Osh to Moscow. Um, and then fruits and melons was, was a scheme that he um, started to work on in 1988-1999. Uh, but for both of them, even as they had these initial opportunities, they started to see at the turn of this decade, uh, some of the difficulties that had been experienced on the southern peripheries uh, now moving towards the center. Uh, Bakchiev noticed that growing inequalities between rich and poor, he remembered on the one hand, um, a new hotel in Leningrad with a paid toilet that was so clean, he said, all in marble that you could have drunk coffee inside, which um, for a Soviet uh, citizen, as for what he remembered, uh, was quite unlike the experiences he had um, previously. Uh, Halimov um, shares similar memories, thinking about political unrest, also moving in from the periphery. Uh, he had been in Vilnius in 1988 and people were spitting at him for speaking Russian. Uh, he had left Tajikistan in 1990, his anti-government riots had hit uh, the city. And later in the year, he began to hear about uh, his own Russian friends telling him that uh, the Russian people should forget about uh, the republics and, and deal with their own for the first time. So as I heard these stories and the emotions with which they were told, I wanted to give them space to breathe um, and understand this turbulent period through the eyes of my subjects. And I was also motivated at the puzzle of trying to figure out the periods uh, and again, try and connect this micro level interviewing to some of the macro level processes that were going on. So um, the central themes I wanna talk about today, uh, first of all, um, this is sort of in the background of the presentation, more in my book, but to challenge the view of perestroika as a clear break from Brezhnev, Brezhnev era stagnation. 
that I would argue that that this word is is inaccurate. Um, it doesn't characterize uh, Soviet society. Certainly, what I saw in earlier periods, from, and I, I talked with the first wave of migration to Moscow and Leningrad in the late 1970s, this was a period of great social dynamism um, where people were seeking out opportunities. Uh, this was maybe beyond the purview of the state, so sometimes it escapes. And we, we see these images of empty grocery stores and, and, and look at state dysfunction, but that's because a lot of the dynamic processes were going outside the state. They were informal networks. There are things that we weren't capturing. Uh, and I think we missed that. And I think there's, there's been more literature that's come out in the last few years. And I'm part of that to kind of rethink the Brezhnev era, um, one that was much more um, open and much had many more opportunities for citizens and through their own eyes. I mean, this, we tend to pass off this Brezhnev era nostalgia as just um, something against the chaos of the 1990s. And there was that, but there's more to it than that. Uh, second, to think of uh, inequalities between center and periphery, that these were things that didn't appear from nowhere. Soviet investment in the Caucasus and Central Asia stalled out really in the 1960s and never recovered since then. And Gorbachev um, not only was, uh, was either unaware of the problem, certainly unaware of the extent or the potential consequences of the problem, actually exacerbated it over perestroika, and, and that has a lot of connections to how this era was lived through the eyes of my subjects and also the challenges and all the, the uh, conflicts on the periphery in, in the last couple of years of perestroika especially. Um, third, the perestroika exposed the extent and the limits of the friendship of peoples in the Soviet Union. Um, so I'll talk a bit more about that. The friendship of peoples I did see as a um, something that was lived and experienced and appreciated and had some import, um, but couldn't survive the economic troubles uh, of the time. And then fourth, as I mentioned, and it's really, again, um, spurred on by the oral histories that I've done to understand the experiences of mobility in the last years of the Soviet Union and how citizens balanced opportunities and risks and what we can all in our own ways um, gain from that in terms of understanding state society relations, um, understanding uh, how the Soviet Union evolved and how it ended in 1991. So I'll start with talking a little bit about the first years of perestroika. Um, again, as I mentioned, my interview subjects saw the sense of freedom, that new questions could be posed, new books could be read. Uh, I have some images there of uh, dormitory life, and this was probably the greatest sense of um, pride and nostalgia that a lot of my uh, subjects talked about when they first went to Moscow and Leningrad, uh, and this goes back to the 1970s and, and all on in the first years of perestroika, that it was for them a microcosm of the, the friendship of peoples. That you had people from, from Russia, the Baltic republics, um, non-Soviet citizens from um, the develop, developing world, um, you had people from every republic, from, from Birobichan, from uh, Saka, Yakutia, and they would they would all get along together according to these stories. They would cook national meals. They would socialize. And it really made them feel like they were Soviet citizens and that they were privileged Soviet citizens at the heart of the Union. Um, but by even 1986, 1987, they started to hear stories or they started to experience some worrying signs 
in early perestroika. Um, that wouldn't really become clear until 1990 where they would go. Uh, some of my subjects talked about uh, Western Ukrainians in their groups all of a sudden refusing to speak Russian with other Slavic students, although not to them. Students from the Baltic Republics began to keep to themselves. Uh, Gulnar Aliyeva, one of my um, interview subjects, recalled uh, her being at the Kirov Textile Institute dormitory in Leningrad in 1987 and a stabbing occurring between a Kazakh um, and a Russian student, a Kazakh student angry about being mocked over um, anti-government riots in Alma-Ata, the capital of Kazakhstan in 1986. Uh, so these anxieties were there. Um, some of the stories were, were, were a bit humorous, I will say, still at that time. Uh, Shukra Kazbekov uh, recalled a visit to Riga, so to Latvia, he went to that year in 1988, with some of his Russian dorm mates. And again, like um, my previous informant, like Havlimov, uh, they tried to speak Russian and nobody would serve them. So what Kazbekov did finally in a moment of desperation was go up to um, an Estonian uh, at a, to, to probably buy theater tickets and started speaking in Uzbek. And the Estonian person smiled and then responded to him in perfect Russian. Uh, and that became the way that he would begin speaking Uzbek to them, um, showing that he was not he was respectful of um, the Baltic uh, feelings against Russians, and then Russian could become the language of conversation. So, you know, a lot of these perestroika elements, uh, perestroika elements were, were sort of brewing, but not really hitting the center, especially not in Leningrad and Moscow, um, as they did a few years later. So, core peripheral inequalities, I'm, I'm going to point you to a couple of wonderful pieces, Artemy Kalinowski's book. Um, Isaac Scarborough, too, who's got a few articles out, I think his dissertation was just finished, uh, to, to really understand the fact that, uh, or the consequences of Soviet lack of development of the peripheral republics, really from the late Khrushchev period on. That the, the, the dream that, just, that was alive at the end of the Second World War, and really for maybe a decade, decade and a half, decade and a half thereafter, that the Central Asian and Caucasus republics, and especially Central Asia, would become these models of so-called third world development and, and, and be attractive so that they could spread um, Soviet influence to Iran, to India, and places like that. It didn't last for very long. Um, these republics started to grow more and not less rural. Um, I have that image of the, the boat there in the middle to symbolize the Aral Sea, which shrunk at that time because the Soviets were so intent on churning um, Uzbekistan and regions around there into cotton monocultures. Uh, the, the hope for investment in light industry never came, uh, despite pleas from Republican leaders, and, and again, Isaac and Artemy uh, talk about this in great detail. So the consequences for my own subjects, and this happens even before from the late 1970s, but, but then more in the mid 80s, was that we start to get sporadic shortages of goods, um, rising prices as uh, greater, uh, greater unemployment, sometimes it was hidden, but people didn't have jobs, as more and more um, uh, resources were directed towards the center in the Soviet Union. Leaders in this republic begged Moscow for uh, investment, um, but Moscow's plan at that time was instead of investing in Central Asia, was to send young Central Asians to um, the Far East or to uh, Siberia, where they were, they were investing heavily in um, energy and mining. 
Um, so you can see um, on, well, I guess it would be on your left, uh, if you're looking at the screen, the Baikal Amur mainline, where they wanted to train a lot of Central Asians to work. Um, you can see some of the towns in Siberia. So there was a lot of campaigns in Central Asia about getting these people to, um, to the Far East <clears throat> uh, with not that much success uh, because people from Central Asia and the Caucasus didn't want to go. Um, my interview subjects had themselves, they said they had their own ideas. And this was to get to the heart of the Soviet Union and, and fulfill their own dreams and, and find their own opportunities instead of doing what the state wanted them to do. So one of my subjects, Ashraf Bayramov, he concluded in 1987 um, in Azerbaijan. He was in the southern parts of the, the country. And the economic situation would only worsen. Uh, he contacted a friend who he had met at a soccer match a few years before. This was a, a lawyer in Leningrad and um, asked him if he could come up and, and stay with him. The lawyer not only agreed, but also found him a job as a cook in one of the new cooperative restaurants in Moscow. And he stayed um, actually for a while in the, in the kitchen or lived in the back of the kitchen um, and stayed there throughout Perestroika. Uh, and he started to get these stories more and more often from my uh, informants. Um, they, they went through their list of everybody they knew. Often these were to be like army buddies, people they met when they were conscripted, um, fellow students who had ended up in Moscow. Uh, if, they had, if they knew people who were trading already, they would find a way into that network uh, with the belief that by now, especially in the late 1980s, the closer you got to the center, the better your chances of riding out some of these uncertainties that were starting to really appear on the periphery. Again, inflation, uh, lesser employment, shortages. So the numbers are pretty hard to determine um, and, and I don't really want to go into them uh, because they're all unofficial. These are just some of the, the ones that I've compiled. So I'm just going to, I'll just sort of shoot them at you. Um, <clears throat> I didn't set this out to be a quantitative project. I was really looking at the, these immigrants who were coming, but clearly there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people from Central Asia and the Caucasus who came to Leningrad and Moscow in the 1980s. Uh, it's hard to know that the Soviets didn't really keep track as much except for, for in frequent censuses. The cities didn't run censuses by nationality. Um, you know, people who were not registered, who didn't have their city residence permit often um, evaded notice. Uh, and many of them didn't register. Uh, but it's pretty clear that by uh, the late 1980s and early 1990s, um, from anecdotal evidence and, and what you see there, and from what I saw in 1992, uh, the city was filled with people from the Central Asia and the Caucasus. So I think it was mainly at the beginning, again, about opportunities. And uh, my um, informants really stressed a number of things that were going on at that time. First of all, there was a campaign by the KGB against corruption in the food sector. And those of you, if any of you are like, are like me or huge fans of the Americans, the TV show, this is actually covered in this and it was kind of fun to watch. Um, this campaign disrupted supply chains, made produce and goods bought from Southern republics um, and sold at the market or sold in, in vegetable depots and fruit depots. Uh, they could sell them at much higher prices, uh, sell them directly to relatively wealthy, um, Muscovites and Leningraders. I had one um, informant, Mirlan Musabekov, who began growing radishes on his Kyrgyz farm. 
Um, he said they fetched a high price from Muscovites as he started to understand what goods would be in, in demand and fetch, um, fetch good money for him. Uh, and I can show you sort of the, the difference in fruits and vegetables. And, and, and I'm, I'm being a little facetious here because the Russian ones are in black and white, but um, I'm a big fan of Central Asian and Caucasus uh, fruits, vegetables, tea. I should have put flowers there, which was another big um, selling point for Central Asian Caucasus merchants. Um, Mr. Bekov was funny because he was, um, you know, as, as happy as he was to sell these goods, his main anger was the fact that Russians would ask him sometimes if they could buy like a slice of melon or half a melon, whereas in Central Asia, that's unheard of. You either buy the whole melon or you don't buy the melon. Um, and he never really got over that, uh, that anger. And that's one of the reasons he went into these goods that were easily shippable, not quite as heavy um, and more valuable. Uh, so you could sell um, in, like there were official markets that were actually supervised by the state. Uh, there were these, these fruit and vegetable depots, you could sell to restaurants, you could sell to, to stores. Um, and you had a number of southern traders from all the various republics coming up. Azerbaijanis got the, the roughest ride, like a lot of my informants, especially the ones from Central Asia, would say the Azerbaijanis were kind of the ones with the sharpest elbows. Uh, they were the ones trying to drive other merchants out through pricing, through intimidation. Uh, they moved into, apparently, into Ismailovsky Park market, um, took it over, began selling things, anything from fruit and vegetables to cars to narcotics. So these were the stories that I was told about Azerbaijanis, even by some Azerbaijanis um, who said that it was challenging because of the, the competition even between villagers or between cities. So, uh, so these were the, the anecdotal stories I was receiving. Um, the economic difficulties, I would say, drove not just these Central Asian Caucasus traders to, to Moscow and Leningrad, uh, but people um, from all across the Soviet Union. And you started to hear stories, uh, I think those of us who are old enough to remember um, here and were very surprised to hear about homelessness in the Soviet Union in the Glasnost and Perestroika eras, when they started to become more public. Um, and you did have more homeless in big cities because of the financial economic difficulties that were going on in the periphery. Uh, so the Bomji, um, people of undetermined residence, uh, started to make, uh, make an appearance. You had poverty in the cities as well, a very different experience um, from what uh, the Soviet Union wanted to show off in their showcase cities um, in the late 1980s and, into the, in, and then into the early 1990s. Um, but I, for my purposes, and I think overall, it was the tension produced by this higher numbers and higher visibility of Caucasus and Central Asian traders against the Slavic-dominated populations of Leningrad and Moscow. Now, before 1990, when I look at um, published documents and even when I, when I talk to some of the, the informants, uh, it wasn't that there wasn't prejudice, certainly there was. And I talk in my earlier chapter about um, racism in Leningrad and Moscow in the 1970s, 1980s. But I would still say before 1990, um, anti-Semitism might've been the main form of um, prejudice of discrimination in Leningrad and Moscow, at least it was considered as such. Uh, at the same time, perestroika and the increased number of tra traders started to turn attention um, to the fact that these people were visible um, and they, it said something about the nature of the Soviet Union, which people were worried already was being distorted by, uh, and you can see this quote from a book, uh, a 1986 book, um, 
characterizing Georgians in this case as these sort of capitalists robbing Russians blind, sort of this question of greed, um, this question of lack of education. So these are sort of very similar stereotypes that I even saw in my own work in the late czarist period, just before the end of the czarist uh, regime, where the sort of fear of capitalism, so-called capitalism, money grubbing, led to a lot of different um, forms of discrimination and prejudice. And it starts to become attached to Central Asian Caucasus traders, starting earlier even, accelerating in, in the late 1980s. Um, you start to hear, for example, along with this, uh, Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and others, egging on Russians, saying we sacrificed too much for the Union, and look what's happened, all these people are coming to our cities, um, Russians are, 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 are too weak now to fight back. Uh, you sort of have in tele, Glasnost television, um, people from Russian cultural organizations, Pamyak was one of them, talking about the fears of, of what they called mongrelization and the mixing of the races, uh, and that this was something that needed to be guarded against. Um, I would say again, sticking with my, my argument about turning points and, and this turning point in 19, around 1990, was there was a publication of the census in 1989 that really had a strong effect on shifting a lot of ethnic discrimination and especially in these kind of right-wing newspapers, nationalist newspapers that came out of the part of, on the part of the Glasnost press um, to Central Asian and Caucasus peoples. So you can see the figures there. Um, when the census was published, I think Russians were 50.8% of the Soviet Union's population by the census. But I think the general co consensus among people was that this figure was not accurate, that they were actually under 50%, but um, the state just decided to, to put a number above 50% to make Russians not feel even more anxiety-filled than they already were. Um, you can, and the numbers of Uzbeks, numbers of Central Asians especially, had increased, so you can see the figures there. <clears throat> And all of a sudden now, the tropes that were uh, of sort of anti-Semitic language and imagery that I saw in the, in the press and that my informants talked to me about in their interviews now start to be returned towards Central Asian and Caucasus peoples. So the blacks were now being blamed, uh, the so-called blacks, and I'll show you some of these epithets that I'll just run through them. You can see, um, see the ones that they were called and, and most of these predate um, the uh, Glasnost period that came up in the 1970s, 1980s. Um, uh, actually, it's LKN, Litsukovskoye which is probably the most recent one of them all, um, which they seem to really take it, which people took offense in, in the, the late uh, perestroika period. But they were being blamed for all kinds of societal ills, anything from bringing AIDS into Russia, um, running criminal gangs, uh, and part of the discourse against people from the Caucasus and Central Asia, actually, they, they were too successful. That the Russians themselves, again, the Solzhenitsyn talked a little bit about this, but others did too, that Russia was shrinking demographically, Russians were suffering from alcoholism, Russians were suffering from divorce, and they needed time to figure out their own people in their own country, or they were going to be dominated by the Central Asian Caucasus peoples who were coming in, taking over um, and potentially uh, burying them um, and burying the nation as a whole. Um, one newspaper, Nashevrania, complained that the Soviet Union was now just coming, becoming just like the United States, 
with the um, blacks in the United States moving up to northern cities, and now this was happening uh, through a generation later in the Soviet Union. So <clears throat> these stories became um, manifold, and I, I, got, I got them from Western observers as well. And you can see sort of Timothy Colton when he was in Moscow and, and listening to his interviews about from locals. Um, and then an Azerbaijani trader in 1990 talking about the, the challenges that he had, um, the fact that you sort of went to your workplace, you went home, um, there was tension on the streets, uh, they could be attacked at any time. And, and these attacks were different. Now, when I talked to um, <clears throat> informants in the 1970s and 1980s, if they were robbed or attacked, it often tended to be by the militia, um, and, and it was often for bribes, bribes that weren't paid. There were maybe occasional scuffles at the market. Um, some could turn violent, but it was pretty sporadic. Um, but by the late 1980s, and especially by early 1990, you started to even get attacks over food. So people trying to steal food from um, Central Asian Caucasus traders. So it's a bit of a different character. Uh, and this increased as food itself started to become scarce in Leningrad and Moscow. And this, these were part of the last bastions um, to have regular food supplies. And one of the reasons they ran short is that Russians from nearby cities and towns started to come into Moscow and Leningrad to try and take food back. Uh, so at first, at the beginning of 1990, um, Moscow City Council was started to take over food buying directly tried to actually buy from Central Asian and Caucasus traders through these base depots. It wasn't successful. Um, by May of 1990 in Moscow and Leningrad, rationing had to be introduced on uh, staple goods. And you started to have um, inflation over 100, right? in the multiple percentiles, double digit in 1990, triple digit in 1991. Um, the pain and suffering of Muscovites was pretty widespread. Um, Terry Grushvili, George and I talked to, and um, I have that, that slide on, on the far right that I had before, but she can remember seeing a market setting up right, um, right there. She saw that market and said, uh, it was a sad sight by 1991 because what you had, and I saw this in 1992 as well. So again, one of these things about mixing uh, across 1991, you had Russians from Moscow or nearby villages coming in um, selling goods, selling their own um, clothing, furniture, selling cigarettes, trying to buy enough food, using that money to, to, to buy uh, vegetables and fruits from Central Asian and Caucasus peoples. Um, so uh, this the sort of linkages on the one hand, but this competition on the other started to become extremely tense. And so as these robberies and these, uh, these tensions increased, for the first time in my interviews, and obviously I'm sort of thinking chronologically um, in terms of their timeline, by the end of 1990 and early 1991, um, people from Georgia, Georgians, Azerbaijanis, Tajiks, all start to think about like, is Leningrad and Moscow where we really want to be? Whereas there was not much of a question before. There could be questions to how long you wanted to live there, but there was no question that you could, the opportunities in terms of making money, advancing professionally, societally, earning a good education and, and then improving yourself in your home republic. Um, 
that they were there before 1990-91 and they were worth going to Leningrad and Moscow for. Now all of a sudden that's not the case. And I heard a lot of heartbreaking stories about these people, especially say people from uh, Tbilisi, Baku, Dushan uh, Bay, where there were, there were civil conflicts raging in these countries. And they had to make this decision, do I stay in Leningrad or Moscow, um, or do I move back to my home republic? And, and it was, there were all kinds of factors. Often if they were from farms and smaller villages, they would go back um, thinking, okay, well, I can grow my own food. I have animals, I could be safe. I had some who went back to Tajikistan um, and they got caught up in the civil war um, and then tried to make their way back to Moscow. Uh, and it, it became just this, this, this time of complete chaos. And when I think about what, um, sort of by way of conclusion, because I want to leave some time of discussion, I think about the 1990s and we always talk about how Putin um, has run against the 1990s for the entirety of his um, career. And not just Putin, but um, a lot of these um, <clears throat> leaders on the periphery, especially in Central Asia, you start to get a sense of why. Right? You start to get a sense of how stressful that period was for people, um, no matter where they could go. And they used to always have this comfort of the Soviet Union as being this sort of their own world, basically, right? They could travel a lot with internally. There were a lot of opportunities. As long as you weren't political, you had a pretty wide sphere of, of, of operation. Um, and this all shuts down starting in 1990, going through 1991, into 1992. <clears throat> and again, the, the change of regime was far less important than these economic indicators, um, the civil conflict on the periphery, and all these things that made their lives um, switch from one where they could imagine an optimistic future to one where, where nothing seemed certain anymore. And I'll just end with, with another uh, so, time for this, just sort of shelter from the storm. I would say that um, even in Moscow, 1990, 1991, um, the, the central government and the city governments tried very hard to take care of universities, medical institutes, the pain was felt unequally. Um, but just to end here, and another legacy uh, in terms of what happened in perestroika, and you can see these figures that um, this is where, when you think of the prejudice and racism against people in the Caucasus of Central Asia that became really clear in the early 2000s, um, after many of them returned to Moscow to take advantage of economic opportunities, and were kind of the second wave with the, the ones that I interviewed, actually now then some of the ones who stayed led diaspora organizations, um, that unlike in earlier numbers, and some of the ones I had from early perestroika years, the Jews were much higher, here you see numbers that, and this is just one poll, obviously, I'm taking unscientific at that, obviously, but you, you get a sense of, of, what, um, of what turned at that time period and this, this belief that um, these people from the Caucasus and Central Asia were taking advantage of their time in Leningrad and Moscow. And this had deadly consequences in the, the 2000, 2010 time period. And fortunately, things have gotten a little bit better, but it's still um, the xenophobia and racism that you see in Moscow and St. Petersburg today is far more um, than you might have imagined a generation earlier. Um, so I'll stop there and, and thank you all for your attention. And I hope I didn't uh, uh, confuse you or bore you too much. And, and uh, I look forward to any questions. Uh, great. Thank you so much. Um, Jeff, I wonder if you want to um, 
maybe turn off your screen sharing and that will allow us to have a gallery view and um, then we can, um, you'll be able to see the participants a little bit better. Um, okay, so the floor is open. I invite participants to um, use the hand raise. Um, uh, I'm seeing perhaps we don't allow that in this. Uh, okay, no, there it is. Okay, so we have a question from Gabe and yeah, I just want to also just ask or, you know, invite anybody who's able to, to um, turn on your video at this point because it makes it a little bit friendlier to um, see faces out there. So um, while we're doing that, Gabe, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, so thank you so much for this lecture. Um, it was really, really interesting. And um, my name is Gabe Shear. I'm a first year master's student at Krika, um, focusing on Kyrgyzstan, political institutions, and service provision there. Um, so my understanding of the history is that, um, you know, during the post-war era for about 30 years, the large majority of people who were coming from Central Asia and the Caucasus were students, um, elites, and there weren't, they were already kind of integrated into broader Soviet culture. And then, you know, in the 70s, you start having more unofficial traders come up um, and it grows and grows uh, in the 80s. So I'm curious, during Glasnost and Perestroika, you start to see more salience in terms of Islam and other, um, like, religions being expressed. So what role does that salience of Islam kind of play where people in Leningrad are in Moscow are being more and more kind of exposed to expressions of faith that um, they wouldn't have seen before. Okay. Should I just take the questions one by one? Yeah, sure. I think that's fine. Okay. So, yeah, okay. So thanks for your question. Um, and yeah, I would agree on the periodization. I want to come back to that because it's a really interesting story. Um, but the question of Islam, <clears throat> It was interesting because, I, and it could have just been the, the, the survey set that I had, um, but a number of the Muslims who, uh, and these people were, were mostly, except not the Georgian Azerbaijanis, or sorry, not the Georgians and Armenians, um, were, were culturally Muslim. Uh, a lot of them would say that, that to the extent that they kept their, or practiced their faith, it was still fairly private. Um, and the mosques that were in Leningrad and St. Petersburg, they saw as Tatar spaces. Um, and that there was a national element to it. Now, a few of them went in, and, and when they went in, they said they were welcome, um, but they didn't see those mosques as being part of their, their daily lives, and they hadn't um, really considered um, religion necessarily, but what they had considered, and I, thought, I mentioned this book of Farsi poetry just at the very beginning, and it sort of highlighted some of this idea of the, the cultural identities that they were able to explore now. So they didn't have to read things in Russian. They could read things in, in especially in Tajiks could read things in Farsi, or they could read about religious ideals and things like that. So there's a lot of that going on in terms of exploring their own identities individually, um, not quite yet collectively in terms of the religion. So that was really interesting. But um, this one question about um, different waves, I thought was the, the biggest surprise I think I got when I was doing my interviews. And this, when I assume my interviews, a lot of them were like 2008, 2010, which was a time when the, the 
xenophobia against uh, people from the Caucasus and Central Asia was at its height in Russia. It had over 100 people dying in those years every year by race-based murders, far higher number of attacks. And you talk about integration, and I, I would say that the um, I had expected the, migra the migrants who I talked to who were there in the 1970s and 80s who I interviewed with students and professionals to express some sympathy with their co-nationals who are now being attacked and, and so on. But I didn't get that. I sort of got this sense of when we went to Moscow and Leningrad in 1970, 1970, we spoke Russian, we fit in, we assimilated. And now these people who are there, they're giving us all a bad name because they can't speak the language and Russian TV. I think they watch a lot of Russian TV which shows them all as like stupid hicks or, or whatever criminals. And they dynamic and I didn't really know what to do with just in terms of national categories, but, but other ones as well. Thanks for the question. So the floor is open. Yes, I'm going to call on Ted. Go ahead. Hi, thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is really a very fascinating um, study. Um, and as you know, someone, I, one of the topics I've been working on lately is the topic of current uh, uh, migrant migration to Russia and its impact on Russian society and how uh, migrants are, are responded to. And I think you know, this really is a vital missing piece here, this historical perspective, which understand, you know, the understanding that this is not, this is a very new experience for Russians uh, living in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg. If you look at back over a longer period, period of time, the exposure to uh, people from the Caucasus, from Central Asia. Um, and so I think it's very valuable uh, for those of us who are studying this topic. So just, a, a, I have a quick question. So as a historian, like given your your historical training, your historical perspective. Could you talk a little bit about these life history interviews and how you uh, use them? And what I'm particularly interested in is, so you, know, you get a lot, you have 75 interviews here. Presumably you've got a lot of stories. You've given us sort of a snapshot of some uh, key uh, stories that presumably you think of as being representative in some way. But uh, how do you handle sort of, or, or did you encounter uh, in your the course of these seventy five interviews, some that did not fit these patterns, some that you know stood out as being you know either just kind of like nondescript, like not having much of a uh, uh, not conforming to sort of a larger pattern. And how do you handle that methodologically? How do you handle about the question of representativeness? Let me put it that way to sort of encapsulate all the different uh, sort of sub questions I've already alluded to. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ted, for the question. Yeah, it's 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 hard. Um, you know, the first thing I do is just make no claim to be representative in a sense, right? It's a qualitative study, so I try and um, cover my back that way. But at the same time, I am making these broader claims. So then it goes. It, so it still goes to to your question about how to do it. Um, and it's hard on so many levels because not only do you have people who have completely different. So to give you one example, I'll have two people. Um, who look to me to be very similar in terms of their phenotype, hair color, skin color, profession, things they did in Moscow, same time period they were there. One of them will tell me, I could not leave the apartment without somebody calling me a monkey or a black every day in Moscow for the five years I was there and I had to go home. And they have the other person saying, 
everybody loved me in Moscow. I never had any trouble. This was like heaven on earth and much, much more multinational than Tashkent or something where the Russians thought they were colonialists. So how you balance that is, is really challenging. And so the only way to do that, I thought, was to try and tell those stories side by side and not to make this, and just um, triangulate a little bit. So when you talk about methodology, to look at some of the printed sources, um, to look at, I didn't do a lot of archive work, um, but to look at memoirs. Um, I didn't do interview a lot of Russians, but some. Um, a lot of my colleagues who are Westerners, some of my advisors, people who were in the Soviet Union at the time, um, and try and just tell these stories in their own words and see if I could fit them into larger narratives. Um, what I did do was uh, put an appendix at the back of my book because I, I didn't want to have the, the narratives disrupted too much by saying, well, this person said this, um, that person said that, and I, didn't, I couldn't figure it out. Um, so I tried to tell the story best I could. And then at, at the back, I kind of said, okay, these are conditions I interviewed. And the problem to too is also that, um, first of all, I thought that I think if I interviewed people, depending on the day I interviewed them, it could be different, right? And, and a lot of oral historians have talked about that. If they're, if they're hungry versus not hungry, if they're in a good mood versus not in a good mood, right, you're going to get a different story. And I, what was clear to me is you get a different story depending on what their life path has been since then. Right? So if they felt successful now, or when I interviewed them in 2010 or 2011, they were far more likely to fit that into a narrative of a successful life versus the opposite. And so I just had to make that clear. That, you know, I do a little bit in my introduction, a bit in the appendix. I don't want to keep coming back to it. Um, and, then the, and then the other challenge is even within the course of the interview, they can contradict themselves. And racism was an, was an example of this too. When I, I could hear um, at the beginning of the interview, yeah, you know, I, I was successful. Everybody loved me. Um, I outworked all the Russians and they, I was part of the collective and everything was great. And then half an hour later, they said, I remember when I went into a grocery store and somebody called me a black monkey and I, I just, I, I couldn't get over it for, for weeks. And so you try and figure that out. And so, um, so methodologically, it's just trying, I, I thought it was just trying to be honest with the, with the readers and, and saying, okay, these are the stories I've heard. There's contradictions. I, I, part of me wanted to think I, the only honest way was just to publish the interviews in full, right? And annotate them maybe. Um, but I was kind of saved from that, that decision by the fact that the ethics board wouldn't allow that because it's too easy to identify <laughs> the people in that case. So I, I didn't do it. Uh, it's just hard. And, and I don't really have an answer to it. I mean, that was my answer to it. Um, but I, I think it's one of the real challenges of the work we do, but we have to, we're storytellers, at least historians, I think are storytellers in the end. And, and so I wanted to tell my story. I want to tell these people's stories through my eyes, I suppose, is my goal. Well, I think that's very helpful. We appreciate the answer. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, next we have Gabby Ivanova. Yeah, thank you so much for the talk. That was that was so amazing. Um, I am currently a student at Williams College, struggling to ru learning Russian. Uh, so, good luck. It's hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually had a question about um, kind of the inner dynamics between different groups from the Caucasus or the republics themselves, because you do mention that. Uh, people might see, might see people from Azerbaijan as more competitive. But I was just wondering whether they have an identity between them as we're not Russians, we're a bit different, but we have our own group, our own community, or is it just us versus small groups um, that are individual and not connected? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's, it's really hard to, 
it works on so many levels because, um, and I remember the first the first article, I, one of the first major article I did out of this project, I used the term sort of blacks or southerners and I thought it, that's like it's a catch-all for the groups of people I decided to interview more than it was um, really repre representative of how these people refer to themselves. And, and so, and how they refer to themselves could vary, right? It could, it could sometimes be this national label. It, it often was the, the town or the city they were from. People had a clear, and I think one of the things that, that was made, it wasn't surprising because I, I sensed it before, but there's a big difference between someone who comes from a city and someone who comes from a village in the Soviet Union in terms of their self-identity um, and their belief. And, and, and so, um, so that was, that was clear to me that, that village people kind of, no, I mean, people from the villages um, had a certain identity. Um, they were they were they were aware of their national identity, but their identity was more town, family oriented. Um, I think people from cities tended to have a different a different sense. Uh, and most of the most of the time, people from cities were going to Leningrad and Moscow. Already, it's urban people, and they, and so they were going more for professional opportunities for education, whereas the ones who were from the villages, um, more often than not, although there were exceptions, um, went as traders and, and service people. And one of the reasons for that was by the 1970s already, you had a lot of Russians leaving Central Asia and the Caucasus. And so, and a lot of these Russians were teaching at village schools. And so it used to be that no matter which village you were in, in many villages of any size in Central Asia, you had like a Russian school. And so the, if you're learning Russian language is another big piece of an identity, do you speak Russian or not? Um, and once these people start to go away, that exacerbated the split between rural and urban. And so to me, that was, that was often how people referred to themselves in terms of like, um, the people who were coming from villages had a completely different experience of Moscow because it was the first big city. Whereas people from the city said, oh, I used to go there as a kid because my dad would take me. And so it wasn't that different. And I was a city person, so I, I fit in. Um, so I would say that was probably um, at least as important as these. The national ones kind of came into to play in terms of trader networks, but it was, it was as much local as it was national. Um, but the Azerbaijani one was that was the one that I found that was really um, salient in people's minds. But also, again, you sort of think of um, when these interviews were being conducted and people from Central Asia now probably have more of a separation from Azerbaijan than they might have at the time. And how much does that play into it? I'm, I'm not too sure. Um, so it's complicated, but really interesting. Great. Well, I just want to, again, recommend people <laughs> to go and buy the book um, and read the book. And just um, to thank you for, um, you know, documenting and bringing to, um, to the historical record these um, stories. But I wanted to ask a question as well, which is, um, especially, I, I really like the setup of the, you know, how to understand perestroika by looking at the experiences that came before. But in terms of the contemporary period, um, I was wondering about the distinction between Central Asia and the Caucasus, um, and in particular in light of the Chechen wars and the association of Chechens with terrorism whether you saw, because you were doing your interviews in the, in the 2000s, um, more of a distinction between people from Central Asia per se and people from the Caucasus, even within the 
you know, there's of course national differences within those two larger regions. But I just was wondering if you saw any distinction between those those larger regions, especially post um, Chechen War. Thanks. Yeah, the Chechens are a really interesting case because I can remember the very so the very first interviews I did for this project were. Um, I guess 2003, 2003, 2004. And at that point, I mean, I, methodologically, I had done all histories before. I'm trying to figure out how to structure the interviews. And, and so the main worry was like, do you record these interviews or not? And um, often, I, my, my, I thought people would not want to have these interviews recorded because they didn't want Russians to, to run the Russian police potentially or whatever to hear them saying bad things about the state. But they were actually more worried about people from um, either their own community or other communities hearing their interviews. And um, Central Asians in particular, um, because we, I interviewed some of these people, there were some refugee centers that were um, from the Tajik War and different, there were different people from the refugees from Afghanistan and things like that, it's a pretty mixed group. Um, and they were clear that there were, Central Asians saw themselves as being kind of more mild people um, more um, uh, vulnerable in a sense, and people from the Caucasus being more aggressive, and 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 the Chechens especially were dangerous, and they were dangerous in terms of the potential treatment of Central Asians if they were all in the same area. They were also dangerous because it was their terrorism. Again, this is sort of shortly after some of these attacks um, that were attributed to Chechens. They were causing bad feelings for all the for Muscovites and St. Petersburgers towards them. So definitely you've got a sense that the Central Asian groups um, saw themselves as set apart and saw themselves, I think, um, as more Soviet in the end. Like I, I found that Central Asians, definitely when I interviewed a lot of Central Asians, and I asked them through near the end of the interview, um, you know, what's your identity? How do you feel? And they would often say, I, I, I was a Soviet citizen and I still am one. And they have a lot of good things to say about the friendship of peoples and a lot of um, nostalgia for the time. Whereas people from the Caucasus and not, um, not universally, but you know, they had uh, much more of a nationalist narrative. And in, in, so they talked a lot more about Soviet colonialism. They talked a lot more about um, the opportunities. And that, that, that bled itself into the interviews, bled itself into the relationships that, that definitely did have this, this separation. So lumping them together was a bit of a, um, I mean, it was a choice that was easier to make in the 1970s and 80s. I definitely couldn't do it now. Um, and then it was challenging too to try and filter out right, some of the ways that the Caucasus, if somebody from the Caucasus started talking about Soviet colonialism, is it because the Caucasus were under more of a colonial regime? I think it was more that they learned about it that way, or they, that, that, that discourse was circulating. Whereas at the time in Central Asia, when I was doing my interviews, the, the leaders were still very pro-Russian, pro-sort of um, CIS or something like that. So I think all those things became really interesting to, to think about as well. Yeah, very interesting. Thanks. Okay, we have... 56 participants, and many of them I know are extremely interested in this topic. So I want to just invite those of you in the audience who haven't asked a question yet to go ahead and raise your hand. Um, yes, Hiko, yeah, go ahead. 
Um, thank you very much for this really interesting lecture. I've been following your work since uh, 10 years ago, <laughs> I guess. Um, my question is, I, I'm from Uzbekistan as well. I was just wondering, how do you apply the discourse of racism in this um, lenses of nationalism? Because um, for me, it was really kind of like hurtful to be heard, uh, to be seen as through lenses of racism because we, 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 did, we studied in Soviet Union that there are like only three races and uh, they're distinguished by um, certain facial features, uh, I mean like certain physical attributes. And uh, then coming in this new era, especially like uh, being labeled with the, with the different uh, labels, it's kind of was difficult to comprehend. So I was wondering, how do you uh, actually mix this uh, or your respondents, like do they uh, have this difference between nationalism and racism? Because um, from my parents' experience who also studied in uh, St. Petersburg, Leningrad at that time, they also had felt some sort of uh, superiority of Russians, but, but it was never this kind of like a, um, confrontations that was usually seen in terms of racism that you uh, I have seen in US between white and uh, black people. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a, again, these, you're asking really great, everybody's asking really great and, and interesting and hard questions. And I really struggled with this thought of how to define of um, ethnicity, race, and nation, right? They're, they're all these, these are all related terms. Um, to me, I, I, I think that, and I use the term racism when I talk about the Soviet Union, um, and not just the three races, you know, the, the way that the regime talked about, but I, I talk about racism against people from Central Asia and the Caucasus. And it's not just because they're called black, right? The, so which is a kind of racialized term, but it's also because I would argue that even though the vocabulary is sort of national, the way that nations were um, portrayed in the Soviet Union had very racial characteristics, right? There was very much you were an Uzbek or you were a Kyrgyz or you were a Russian. Um, you know, they, they were attached to things like physical features, um, to these sort of deep cultural and behavioral traits. And to me, that was enough to, to use the term race, as well as the fact that there was um, significant prejudice, but um, as you talked about your parents, I think mitigated by a lot of different things, mitigated by um, the friendship of peoples, mitigated by the fact that the state did not tolerate open displays of nationalism or, or much less, right? And so when I talked to my um, interview subjects, some of them would have these sporadic occasions of racism and traitors would have more. And I talk about that in the book. But for people who were students, they would have some of the things that you, the, the occasional remark maybe, the occasional sense that they were excluded, the occasional sense that they were um, treated as second class, but not like the overt racism. Um, and often the way they defined it, it was really interesting because some of the people who I interviewed, who, are, who lived in Moscow and Leningrad in, in, in the 1980s, and after that became scholars of culture, cultural studies and racism, said, yes, what we faced was racism. And because they were applying the frames that they learned 
from Western scholarship in the 2000s back, just like I was doing. Um, but for any of these people who were students and uh, professionals who lived in Moscow and St. Petersburg, um, uh, who stayed there through the Soviet period, they would look at me and say, oh, racism, that, racism isn't something that happened in the Soviet Union. Racism only happened in the United States. So why are you even calling it that? And I actually had to change my interview questions because at the beginning I would use racism like racism and that got people set off. It's like, no, that didn't happen. No racism here. Um, so I actually had to use the term like, did you see any tensions on the basis of national background? And then people might actually um, start talking about it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm open about that in the book. I talk about that in the introduction to the book and the introduction to my chapter on racism. That's a very delicate dance to try and figure out. But I think to me, there was enough there about the way the Soviets really set nations off against each other to use the term race. But the, the manifestations of racism um, under the Soviet period for many reasons were not nearly as intense as they might've been. And especially when people talked about it as, as uh, against the U.S. or as against other nations. They had a very um, favorable view that they could go out on the streets in Moscow any time of the night, right, and, and not have to, to worry about it. Uh, and I think that was really important to them. Great. I think we have time um, just for two more brief questions. Maybe we'll take them together and um, then give you a chance to reply. Sure. So Michael Goodman and then um, Vidania Stanisic-Keller. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I had a question. Um, was there any significant amount of uh, migration from the Soviet Far East, like uh, Magadan or Kamchatka oblasts to Moscow? Because uh, those two oblasts did have some uh, national autonomous ethnic groupings. I'm wondering if people from those groups or from that part of the Soviet Union uh, suffered any kind of discrimination or resentment. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I, there were some. Um, I captured a few people from the Far East um, in, my, um, in my broader interview set. Um, and they did, definitely. And it was, it, it, it was really interesting to, to hear about the sort of levels of, of prejudice. So I remember that some of my subjects um, from Central Asia would be very annoyed um, when they were called Chukchis uh, because they were better than Chukchis. <laughs> uh, and they thought that, and so they saw themselves because, especially again, going back to the earlier question about urban versus rural and things like that, that people are from Tashkent or Baku or something like, saw themselves as more privileged citizens. And these people from, from these small towns in the Far East, um, who had these clearly sort of Asian, sort of Far Eastern Asian features um, and were less, seemed to be maybe less integrated. Uh, they were actually harder to, um, they were actually at a lower level. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was prejudice by Russians against them. And I can remember a couple of my interview subjects talking about that particular, that they were in lines from movie theaters. And when they, they saw people from the Far East, Russians would call them chukchis and, 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 and sling insults at them. Um, but I didn't quite have, um, yes, okay, yes, chukchi is a derogatory term. Um, so that's right. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so it was, it was a level of prejudice. And I do think that they actually had it um, maybe a little bit harder in that sense, because there, was, there, there wasn't the same diaspora group. 
Right, with Chukchi, would that refer to Eskimos mainly? Yeah, and it was it was it was seen as a slur. Um, so there and there was a Chukchi group, but they were. Uh, it was just one of these things that became uh, uh, became racialized in terms of a term. Right. So basically, if you're a Chukchi, you were like an Eskimo, and and you were um, uh, uncivilized, and and you you just couldn't even. Um, Imagine modern culture. You were backward, and all these kinds of things, and and this was a a prime insult leveled against people from that. <laughs> okay, thanks. Okay, and last but not least, uh, Vildana. Uh, thank you, thank you so much, Jeff, for wonderful uh, presentation. And I started reading your book. It's fascinating to hear finally those voices that are kind of usually presented in academic theoretical way. My question is, um, do you, did you find difference between St. Petersburg and Moscow in terms of that racializing or, you know, tatarizing every othering, everyone who is not Russian? Because we know during Soviet era that it was kind of a part of education that Russians are those whites and everybody else is black. So did you find difference between St. Petersburg and Moscow in that, in terms of... Um, yeah, I mean, it was... That, of, of yeah, I, I do think that there was a general sense that Moscow was um, more international, that uh, the universities were, um, were stronger um, and that there were more opportunities um, to stay in Moscow because it was the capital and continue to work uh, and make your way up the ladder professionally. So there was some appreciation of that. Um, Petersburg, I got a lot of mixed uh, mixed bag. I mean, some people say um, Petersburg was a, uh, a very welcoming city. It was more cultured. Um, and so the same, you got in with, in my informant's views, the same kind of, um, Moscow, St. Petersburg, kind of stereotypical rivalry. Like Moscow is, St. Petersburg is St. Petersburg is more cultured. Um, St. Petersburg is more intellectual. Moscow is just this big overgrown village. Whereas Muscovites would say Moscow is a capital. Um, and then St. Petersburg was made up of people, um, the Skobari, the people who came after the Second World War and weren't cultured and intellectual as the ones who came before. So I wasn't able to really discern um, from my interview set like a, a significant difference. It was more the difference of experiences that people had and I didn't get a consistent, uh, consistent set. But what I really realized is they were either very, they, they had a loyalty to that city or disloyalty to that city based on the experience. And they, they themselves saw Moscow and St. Petersburg as very different using the same language as the Russians did. As they started to assimilate into one city or another, they would, they were fling sort of those different attributes at the other city, uh, which in itself is a really interesting story. Um, we are um, out of time, but I just want to thank um, Professor Sahideo so much for sharing his new book with us and his work. And thank you all um, to the audience and, and to Krika for organizing. <laughs>